Right, okay, well look, as uh, has been already mentioned today, we're going to return to our greater story preaching theme this morning. I have to say, as I've been preparing uh, this uh, uh, during the course of this week, there have been a couple of themes that have just been shouting at me that I know I have to talk about, and I'm going to be talking about those in the second half of this preach. But actually, what I'd like to, where I'd like to start is I'd like to try and knit what I'm, where we are going to pick it up from, which is Exodus 13, 14, and 15. I'm going to try and knit that with what Ian was saying last week. Do you remember where Ian was last week? He was in church. Yes, all right, I know that. Where, what character were we looking at last, not last week, the week before? Moses. Moses. Good. Very good. <laughs> That's very good, yeah. So, and if you recall, we were looking at quite a large chunk of the book of Exodus, and and Ian was looking at what was a very dramatic time in the life of that particular nation. And um, we really, I guess, for the first few chapters of the book of Exodus, we were witnessing really the birth of a nation. That's what we were seeing. And then we were seeing that God lead them very, very powerfully out of Egypt, out of a land of slavery where they had been slaves for 400 years. So that's kind of quite a long history, really, where they had been. And uh, so I thought what I'm going to do is I'm just very quickly just going to remind you of some of the, 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 the scriptures that Ian went through uh, two weeks ago. And um, if you remember, he started looking at the fact that God revealed himself to Moses through a burning bush. Do you remember that? Yes, good, good, good. Yeah, and so there was this burning bush, but it didn't burn up. And God spoke to Moses through this burning bush. And um, he says to him, look, Moses, I want you to lead my people out of Egypt. And uh, how did Moses respond not very well. No, he was beset with personal doubt, wasn't he? He just said, basically, uh, well, uh, uh, please would you send someone else, God? That would be very nice. And God was not very pleased with that, but he did say, okay, I'll give you Aaron. He's a good talker, uh, so I will give you him to help you. And then God showed uh, uh, Moses some miraculous signs And he tells him, look, you need to know this from the outset. Pharaoh is not going to play ball. He is not going to want to let my people go. And sure enough, Moses and Aaron go along to Pharaoh. And he says, no. And he says this. He says, "Uh, I don't know the Lord, so why should I obey him? And do you remember Ian speaking so helpfully about that line, saying, that is exactly like our culture today. That is exactly what our culture says. We don't know God. Why should we obey him? And then Pharaoh, as a result of this conversation, if you recall, makes life harder for the Israelites by refusing to give them straw to, so, because they have to make bricks. That's, uh, uh, they are slaves, and therefore that's what they have to do. But he said, I'm not going to give you any straw, but I do expect the same output And then, of course, we saw the ten plagues, and we saw these ten plagues. I mean, just incredible things. And we saw each one of those plagues was a challenge to a different Egyptian god. And God was saying, no, no, you are not God, I am God. Do you remember that? And then, of course, we come to the last plague, the most terrible one of them all. And that was the, yeah, the the death of the firstborn. Absolutely. And... um, 
we saw that every firstborn human and every firstborn animal throughout uh, Egypt died. And in amongst all of that, we see the Passover. Do you remember that's why that's named? Because God had spoken to the Israelites and he said, if you put the blood of a lamb on the doorposts of your house and on the lintel at the top, you put blood on that, it means when the angel of death comes into Egypt, I will pass over that particular house and go on to another. And again, Ian just so helpfully showed us the parallel, the very powerful parallel there, didn't he? Do you remember this? And it pointed to Jesus. I'm glad you remember. That really is important. Um, yeah, and it was a very powerful parallel. So the people came through t- to their freedom through the blood of the Lamb, pointing, of course, to Jesus. Jesus sheds his blood some thousands of years later on the cross, and that is our freedom, freedom from uh, sin for us. So it's a very, very uh, powerful symbol uh, that we saw there. Then eventually, of course, Pharaoh lets the people go, and we see the people being rescued, and then the Egyptians give the Israelites silver and gold and clothing, and then also, lastly, we saw the Passover meal instituted. It's an annual reminder of what God did that day. So important to remember what God has done in your life. We have to keep reminding ourselves of our own salvation story. So important. So Ian covered a huge amount, didn't he, in that time? There were, how many chapters was it? It was 10, 12, something like that? Yeah, that's quite a lot. And today, what we're going to do is we're going to look, as I say, at chapters 13, 14, and 15. Now, I can't read all three of those chapters to you. You'll be relieved to know. Um, So what I'm going to do, like I've really just done there, I'm going to give you a fairly detailed breakdown of what happens in these chapters. And I want to try and do a bit of a David Attenborough on you this morning, if I can. And uh, I'm, I won't do the accent. But, but with David Attenborough, when he speaks about stuff that, uh, to be honest, I'm not that interested about. But when he speaks about it, you think, oh, that is quite interesting. I'm so, oh, you know, he says, you know, he, actually, I'm going to do the accent. <laughs> Here we are in the Amazon rainforest. No, we're going to do that about the Bible today. So I want, what I'm going to try and achieve is I'm going to go through these three chapters and my hope is I'm going to spark in you a desire to go home and say, I have got to read these chapters for myself. I want you to go and read your Bible. You know, reading your Bible is so important. And I know some of you will have a culture of reading your Bible and others of you won't. Well, let me provoke you today. Hey, go home, read these three chapters for yourself. That's what I'm hoping to achieve here. Now, uh, before I go through this, um, uh, I'm not going to have a lot of time to go into this particular subject, but we have seen already uh, that uh, the whole of the book, really, of Exodus has some very strong parallels with the Christian lifestyle, haven't we? And I've obviously uh, already made reference to the Passover, and today we're going to be looking at the crossing of the Red Sea. And I just need to say to you that actually generally when people look at the crossing of the Red Sea, the parallel to the Christian life there is what? Baptism. Yeah, very good. It's baptism. We see a group of people who were in slavery. When they go through the waters, they come out as free people. And that's the symbol of Christian baptism, isn't it? When we put someone down under the water, 
It looks like they've died. I mean, if we left them there too long, they probably would, actually. But we don't leave them to there, and they have died. And that's a symbol of them dying to sin, their old life. And then we bring them up again to their new life as free from sin. So that's the kind of parallel that we see in there. Now, I just want to throw that in because we are looking at the greater story. And the idea with the greater story is that we look at the bigger picture. So I want you to have that to know what it is. The other thing I would say is that there are a number of other parallels to the Christian life. But I'm not going to tell you what they are. I'm going to go through this synopsis and I'm kind of hoping that you will begin to think, yeah, is that a synopsis? Is that a parallel to the Christian life or not? You know, they say sometimes good preaching is not to give all the answers, but it's just to set a good question. And I, so what I'm challenging you today is to think, can I work out how this is like the Christian life uh, uh, myself? Right, so we're going to go through these three chapters. Are you ready? Yes, you're buckled up, got your popcorn out. Okay, here we go. So after the introduction then of the Passover meal, we see God command that the firstborn of both humans and animals should be consecrated, made holy to him. Interestingly, this is the first time we, we see this idea being applied to humans. The only other thing that's been blessed and made holy and is the seventh day prior to this. So this is a new thing that God is now introducing. He also institutes the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And this, of course, is uh, about remembering their days of deliverance from Egypt. So it's another feast designed to make them remember. Really, this whole issue of remembrance could actually be a separate theme, something that we need to remember. So we got to this point now where we have approximately two million people walking together out of Egypt. I mean, you think Seven Oaks High Street is busy, nothing compared to this. Two million people with all their possessions as well and all their animals. The Bible then says that God does not lead the people the most obvious route. You would think, wouldn't you, that God would say, right, what's the quickest route to get them to the promised land? But God says, I'm not going to do that. Does anybody know why? Yeah, well, kind of, yeah. They'd have to go through the land of the Philistines. And if you go through the land of the Philistines, you will have to fight. It's a bit like Millwall fans. (laughs) Go to Millwall, you have to fight. The Philistines are the equivalent of Millwall fans. Does that help you to get, get a picture? So God, God says, no, I'm not going to take them there. We will not go to Millwall. We'll go round, very definitely. And if these guys have to fight, even though they're dressed in all their finest fighting gear, God says, looks, looks at them and he says, you know, they're not up to it yet. They're not ready. And if they have to fight, they'll all run off back to Egypt. So I'm not going to take them that way. Now, also in this account, we read this. This is an extraordinary thing um, that happens here. God himself leads them. Now, I know we've got Moses and Aaron, but God himself chooses to lead his people, and he leads them through a pillar of cloud 
during the day, and this pillar becomes a pillar of fire at night. Well, I'm quite impressed with that. You clearly aren't. It's extraordinary, this idea that the people are following God. And uh, in this extraordinary, extraordinary way. Then Moses is instructed to set up a camp in a particular place just in front of the Red Sea. And we actually find out in the scriptures that God is setting a trap for the Egyptians. Because God knows uh, that they are about to change their mind. They're going to come after the Israelites to try and recapture them and re-enslave them. So God decides, no, I'm going to provoke a bit of a fight with them. So I'm going to make it look like the Israelites are sort of trapped or have lost their way. And sure enough, Pharaoh turns up with all his chariots and his army. This, bear in mind, this is the most powerful army on the face of the planet at this time. And uh, they brought all their, you know, their best stuff, all their best uh, chariots. And uh, the people of Israel don't know what God has in mind to do. And when they see that, that army, those enemies coming down on them, they are terrified. Yes, absolutely terrified. And um, the people are not slow to let Moses know what they think of this situation. And they say this, and they say, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? Basically, they are moaning. They are terrified. And they are saying to Moses, what have you done? So Moses then turns round and makes an incredible statement. He says this. Now, bear in mind what's going on here. Moses has got the armies of Israel, the most powerful army in the world, bearing down on them. And he has got people who are screaming in fear at him. And we talk about a pressure situation. That's tough for a leader. What does Moses do? He stands up and he says this. Fear not. Stand firm. And see the salvation of the Lord which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you will never see again. The Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. So I think we just got to stop for a minute and recognize that's an incredible statement of faith at a time when many leaders would not have responded like that. And we just appreciate, understand the character of the man uh, that we're dealing with. So God uh, tells Moses at this point, look, my plan is to get glory for myself and I'm going to defeat this great big army. So um, I'm going to teach, really, the whole of Egypt that I am God. That's, that's his plan. And God tells Moses to move on. And then he says this. This is a dramatic point in the story, if you're reading it. He says, right, Moses, what I want you to do now is lift up your staff over the waters and lift up your hand. So Moses is now standing in faith in front of a sea and he's been commanded to lift his staff and his hand. And he's standing there. I don't know how he felt at that point. But God had said, this is what I want you to do. And uh, God says, as you do that, I will divide the sea in front of you. 
I will divide the sea. All part of God's extraordinary plan. Now also, this is an important detail in the story. We notice that the pillar of cloud that has always been out front, God leading, now changes position and it comes round to the rear of the Israelite camp. And so it now separates the, uh, the Egyptians and the Israelites and it means the two now cannot get close to each other because God himself is standing there. And then the Bible describes what happens next. It says this, All night there is a wind that makes the, dry, makes the sea dry land and the waters are divided. And it ends up with the waters being a wall to them on their right hand side and a wall to them on their left hand side. God has created here an extraordinary corridor through a sea. God has opened up a sea. The, the ground is now dry. Can you imagine those two million people walking through that corridor, looking at this wall of water, thinking, how do I, this is, and there's another one over there. What is this? It's such a powerful moment in Israel's history. This is going to be quoted again and again and again. You'll find it running all the way through the scriptures. And after a while then, this has happened, and these two million people are now going through this corridor. And the Egyptians think, well, hang on a minute, we'll have a go at this too. So they think, right, let's get in. So they start to come in as well with their chariots and so forth. God has to sort of confuse them a bit. That's what the scriptures tell us. Their wheels get a bit bogged down, and uh, they start to drive a bit more slowly. And then God tells Moses, lift up your staff again over the waters. And we know that every single Egyptian is then drowned because the waters return to their normal course. But all of the Israelites are saved. This is what the Bible says. If I can get this to go to the next one. There we are. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. And Israel saw the great power of the Lord used against the Egyptians. So the people feared the Lord. And they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. I bet they did. I bet they did. I mean, that's, that's quite impressive, isn't it? So our dear friend, Ian Lane, would have said, that's quite good. <laughs> then in, we move into chapter 15. And what happens there? We see uh, Israel singing a kind of victory song that praises God. And it tells the story of what's just happened. And it acknowledges his power and his ability to comprehensively defeat his enemies. That's going to be important in a little bit. But that's what they sing about. And then Miriam, the prophetess, she stands up and all, she gets all the women. And they dance and they sing another song. And this is also is about God's triumph and again about God's ability to defeat his enemies. And they come through on the other side. Now, you would have thought having seen that fairly impressive display of power and awe that this would have resulted, this would have created the most dedicated, worshipful, uncomplaining 
committed group of believers that the world had ever seen. I mean, wouldn't you? Oh, you're a tough crowd. Well, I, I would. I would have thought, wow, look at that. And about, of course, unfortunately, we discover pretty quickly this is not the case. And we read at the end of chapter 15, Moses then says, okay, we've come through the, the Red Sea. Now we need to move on. And after three days, when they can't find water that's fit to drink, they start grumbling. They start grumbling. And um, we know, of course, if you know this story, you'll know that this grumbling business becomes a big problem, doesn't it? In fact, we are told in the New Testament, grumbling is one of the reasons they do not get into the promised land. Grumbling. You wouldn't have thought grumbling. You'd think something else. But no, no, God says no, grumbling is a real deal, a problem. Now, I hope also in that that the irony isn't lost on you because you've got a group of people here who are complaining about water. God's, you haven't provided us with good water. God has just demonstrated his power over water in the most extraordinary way, hasn't he? Wow. In fact, they've sung a song, and the song goes, one of the lines is, you have an ability to pile up the waters. They've all been singing it. And then they sing, you, you can make the floods stand up in a heap. And then they say, oh, he can make the waters congeal deep down. You are God over water. Three days later, they're not so sure. They're not so sure. Okay, so what does Moses do? Well, Moses cries out to God and just says, God, what do we do here? And God shows his great wisdom and grace. And he says, look, if you get some because they're in front of this bitter water. If you get some wood, get a certain kind of tree, and you put it in there, that will change it, and it will make it drinkable. And that's what happens. <clears throat> and then the end of the chapter comes with God testing the people, and he makes a rule for them. And he says this, If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, then I will keep you free from all the diseases that the Egyptians knew. He says this, Really important. For I am the Lord, your healer. Really important scripture. God says, I am the Lord, your healer. God still says that to us today. I am the Lord, your healer. And isn't it amazing of God? They have just seen God's power. And God says, okay, I'm going to show you something else about my character. Not only am I awesomely powerful, but I am also a healer. You know, that's part of the Christian life. That as we go on, we, we see something of God. We meet God. He's the Savior. He forgives us. And then as we go along in our Christian life, the idea is that you get to know something else about God. You know, there's always something else to know about God. There's always something else where you say, oh, Remember the disciples when Jesus silences the uh, storm and they say to each other, who is this? In other words, we've just learned something new about God today. And then very finally, this chapter ends when they arrive at a camp at Elim. And uh, this is an interesting place because it has 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. So in other words, lots of water and lots of shade. Now, Bible scholars, 
12 and 70. What does that mean to you? Yeah, I'm not very good at maths, that's what I mean. Who went in to Egypt? There were 12 sons and 70 people that went into Egypt. And God has brought the people of Israel, now 2 million, to this place where there are 12 pools and 70 palm trees. He is saying very clearly in that, hey, I looked after you, by sending you into Egypt. Remember why they went to Egypt? They needed to eat. They needed their provisions met. So God said, I looked after you back then, and now you are two million. I'm perfectly able to look after you now. And that's how the chapter ends. And that's how chapter 15 ends. Now, could somebody get me a glass of water, please? Thank you. Thanks, Jesus. Now, look, there's all sorts of symbolism in this story. But at this level, it's really important we don't just see this story as a symbol. That's the danger here. We could just say this is symbolic. Thank you so much. Appreciate that. What this story is primarily, for me, is a remarkable demonstration of God's awesome power okay this is not just a symbol this is a reality God has just done an awesome thing he has just opened up a sea to deliver his people and people have tried to find all sorts of natural explanations so people have said things like well it wasn't the Red Sea it was the Reed Sea so they were able to walk over on the reeds and then the the Egyptians couldn't so they all drowned And then other people have said, well, it was an ebb tide, so that you had the wind, and that would create a wall of water. Well, actually, the problem is there are two walls. No, 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 no. Can we just push all that? What we need to see here is this. God Almighty is in control. And he has just opened up this sea and delivered two million people out of the hands of their enemies. Two million We need to remember what it says in Ephesians, that God demonstrates his immeasurably great power in this situation here. In fact, when we look at this, there is something, oh, oh yeah, there is something of an echo of creation actually going on here. Remember what happens in creation? It says the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters And then it says, God divided the waters and exposed the dry ground. And that's exactly what's just gone on here with the Red Sea. We're told that this wind is coming in, this east wind. And the word used here is ruach, which means what? Breath of God. Or it can mean spirit of God. So the spirit of God is now blowing on this this enormous sea. And the sea is divided, exposing the dry ground. God is saying, I am the creator. I I created this thing. I know how to do this. This is a demonstration of God's awesome power. Now, I need to ask you a question here. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I say, I, I, I do. I believe 
in a God who can do this kind of stuff. I believe in the God of the Bible. I believe in a God who can do things that I can't even consider or imagine. I, I, I believe in a God who can take the natural elements of the world, things like water, and make them do things that they just naturally just don't do. That's what I believe. We've got to see again, he is the creator. The, the, the being that we come to is God. He is God Almighty. And he is able to do uh, whatever uh, he wishes to do. Look, it's important because we live in an age of cynicism, don't we? And doubt. We live in a, an age of indifference. You know, our, you know, whatever generation. Whatever. We, we live in an age that lacks the fear of the Lord. I want to say to you, can we just see again from this story that God is God? And when he speaks, it is so. And he should be feared. I mean, in a healthy way. You know what I mean by the fear of the Lord. The Lord should be feared. Just look at what he can do. So I just need to ask this question again. Do you believe in a God like this? I felt as I was preparing, God, this is one of the things that God was shouting at me. Ask them, do you believe in a God like this? Do you believe in the God of the Bible? Do you believe in him or have you created your own version of God? A rather weaker, paler, more insipid, less able version of God who pops up every now and again. Who, you know, when you drive into the car park and you need a car parking space, you say, oh Lord. And he opens up a car parking space for you. Hallelujah, look at that. Come on, guys. He is way more than that. I mean, he does do that, and I do that too, by the way. And I'm not knocking that. But God is more than this. He's a God who opens seas. That's what the scriptures are telling us. He opens up the seas. He does miracles today. He heals today. Let me, let me make this more personal. He heals. He does miracles for you. Through you. That's what he's looking at. This isn't always someone else's job. God looks at you and says, I want to use you, my child, to do the things that are on my heart. I really have to ask you, do you believe it? Do you believe it? You see, if you don't believe in a powerful God, then he won't really be able to do very much. You need to know, no, this is the God who created the universe. The one who can just speak and it is done. You might say, well, I've never seen that. Well, that's a fair comment. And we have to press in to know this. You know, I hope you know me well enough. I'm pressing into healing because I believe this is the God that we serve. I believe he can do anything. Am I seeing it all? No. But I'm pressing in because on the basis of him and his character and his nature. And I want to encourage you. Press in to these areas to pray on the basis of him and his character and his nature. Last thing then I want to look at is this, and I think this incident, when we look at the crossing of the Red Sea, it demands that we look at this, and we, we look at this, God is able to deliver. He is, the Bible uses this term about God, and it says he is the deliverer. Let me, he is your deliverer. <clears throat> definition of that is um, that refers to God's ability to remove or rescue people from danger or trouble 
um, but in particular to rescue you from your enemies. And we see God the deliverer in Scripture, really from Adam and Eve onwards. Again and again, God comes to deliver his people. Don't we? We see that all the way through the history of Israel. They need a deliverer, so God sends someone. Sometimes he comes and wins the battle, delivers them himself. And I really felt as I was preparing, I sense there are a number of people here this morning. We need to catch this in our heart. You need to know that God is your deliverer. He can rescue you. He can protect you. And I just felt as I was preparing, there are many people here who just don't know this. I think some of you have had to fight all your life to protect yourself. I wonder if some of you have grown up without knowing any human example of a protector. If you've grown up without a dad in your home, or an absent father, or a father who didn't care, you've never had this. You've never had a human example that should be pointing to your heavenly father to say, this is what he does. But I challenge you today, I want you to learn this. We look to him as our deliverer. It's important that we know this because enemies, your enemies, will be knocking on your door at some point, won't they? Now, look, your enemies might be things like sudden sickness. When sudden sickness comes, it's like an enemy coming against you. Or maybe, maybe sudden redundancy comes. And you're thinking, ah, what am I going to do? Or, uh, I don't know, marriage problems. It could be a host of different things, couldn't it? These are the enemies that you and I face today. And they will come knocking on your door. And if you don't know that he is your deliverer, you're going to struggle. So I felt one of my jobs today was to try and put something in your locker. So when your enemies come knocking on the door for you, you've got something to pull out to say, right, this is what I've got to come against my enemies. Now the first thing I think is to acknowledge that God is our deliverer. We've got to acknowledge it. And to help us grasp that, the Bible has given us loads and loads of different images, some of which may you know, sit with you better than others. So for example, this image of the shield. What does God say to Abraham when he's been fighting his enemies? He says, I am your shield. I am your shield. And we see this image used again and again, actually, in Psalms. Psalm 3, I think it is, Psalm 18. I am your shield. God says over you, I am your shield. Maybe that will sit with some of you to understand, oh, yeah, God God does that. Because we also have that in the New Testament, don't we? We've been given the shield of faith. Other images then that God uses to help us understand he's our protector, our deliverer, is strong tower and fortress. Do you remember that? I think it's David, isn't it, in the Psalms? You are my strong tower. You are my fortress. What is a strong tower? A strong tower is a tower at the center of a castle or some kind of defensive complex where if the enemy breaks in, everyone can run into this strong tower, lock the door, and the enemy cannot get in. And God has used that image in Scripture to say, I am your strong tower. Run into me. Run to me. Lock yourself in me. 
is what he's saying. Do you see these images? They're really helpful, aren't they? To help us to understand. In Psalm 91, God, we get this reference to the wing of refuge. How many of you know Psalm 91? Yeah, it's a great psalm for this whole thing. God says, I will be your refuge. Come under my wing. Come under my wing. Again, another protective thing that God is saying. And of course, in our own story here with Moses, we have the pillar of fire and cloud. What happens when the enemy starts to appear? Where does the cloud go? Between them. Why has God done that? Because he is our protector. He is watching over his people. He has always done that. Oh, thank you. Who is your protector? Where do you go when you need protection? When you're facing your enemies? Where do you go to get help? Parents, husband, the government. Maybe you go to distraction. A lot of, a lot of people do. They'll have a drink or two. Maybe they'll bury themselves in some kind of computer game. They'll just forget about everything. Maybe it's shopping for some of you. I don't know, whatever, distraction. Let me ask you a question. Does that work? For long, I mean. <laughs> You rack up a feral bill if it's shopping. Felt God just wanted to challenge you. We've got to learn to run to God. We've got to run into this strong tower. We've got to get behind his shield. We've got to learn how to do that. We've got to have confidence that he is our protector. He really, really does do this stuff. So I'm going to just close then by just looking... Uh, at something else that I hope will help put something in your locker because um, Moses gives some advice in the midst of the enemy coming down on them. What does he say? First thing he says is this, hey people, fear not. Fear not. One of the things we need to recognize is when you face your enemies, your temptation is you will be frightened. Fear will come in at you. It's an enemy tactic to get you frightened. And you need to recognize that fear will come against me. And just the Bible says, don't do it. Say no to fear. Some of you are saying, well, how do I do that? Actually, sometimes you just have to say it out loud. I see you fear. Get off. No, I, I, I serve the living God. Fear is so destructive. It does terrible things. It gets things out of proportion for you. When you are frightened, your enemy will seem much, much bigger than it perhaps really is. It does. It just, it, you magnify your enemy. The scriptures say, magnify the Lord. The other thing that happens when you're fearful is this. You tend to forget what God said to you. God may have spoken over your life. He's given you promises. He said, I'm going to do this with you. I'm going to do that with you. And then you're in the shower one day. You think, oh, there's a lump. I'm going to die. Who does that? I mean, some of us do. Don't we? Oh, no, I'm going to die. and I'm, That's it. I'm gone. That's finished. Hang on, hang on, hang on. What about all those promises God has spoken over you? Come on, don't let fear make you forget what God has said. Don't forget the scriptures. 
And then lastly, fear just destroys faith in you. That's what it does. Look at Peter. Peter was in faith when Jesus said, come, come on the water, walk on the water, come to me. And Peter thinks, yeah, I want to. He's in faith. He does it. What stops him? It's fear, isn't it? He sees the wind and the waves. He's frightened, immediately starts to sink. So fear destroys your faith. So God's answer is, don't do it. Christians, don't let fear in. Fear, to fear not is the most common command in the Bible. And it's the most common because it's the one we are probably most given to. I certainly am. Please, I am speaking to myself this morning. I really genuinely am. Moses also says this, stand firm. Why does Moses say stand firm to them? What were they tempted to do? They were tempted to the people when they saw the Egyptian army. They wanted to run back to them and say, I'm terribly sorry. I know we did a runner. We, we apologize. We'll come back and be your good, obedient slaves again. But please don't kill us. And he is, what Moses is saying is, don't do that. Stand firm on what you know is true. Christians, stand firm on the word of God. What has God said to you? Stand on it. The temptation is to run back to the easiest option. I'll just run back and I'll make everything all right. No, no. Stand firm. This, this phrase, stand firm, is referred to in Ephesians, isn't it? In the context of spiritual warfare. When, when the, we are told, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Interesting in this perspective and when you've done everything you can do the bible says this stand firm on what you know is true so stand firm last thing that moses says is this he says the lord will fight for you you only have to be silent what's all that about being silent <clears throat> i think it's uh this is a call to trust god and to recognize that the victory is actually God's to give. And sometimes you're going to face enemies where you will have no power at all. When you're facing sickness, you think, I haven't got any power here. So the Lord just says, no, it's, just understand this, be still and know, I am God. I am God. So there you go. There are three things that I hope will help you when you're up against your enemies. Let's pray. And we'll draw things to a close. Father, I thank you that you are a good God. Father, I thank you that you are awesomely powerful and that you are also a deliverer. Father, I just ask you that even though we've spoken about these things today, I ask for the reality of it to sink into our hearts so that we will actually believe it. That we will live our lives like these things are true. Lord, I want to ask you for those who have never had any experience of a human protector or deliverer in their lives, I ask for extra grace, please, for them. Father, that they would know what it is to run to you and to know you as a strong tower, as a strong uh, wing under which they can gather and be uh, and, and no refuge. Holy Spirit, I ask you, please, for a significant change in our attitude towards you. Father, I ask that today would be a shaping day for us where the word of God now comes and dwells richly in our hearts. God, I ask you, please, that this group of people will be different from today. 
And Lord, that we will be more like you, Lord Jesus. We will take on your character, your qualities, and we will trust you and walk with you. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, well, look, that draws us to the close. Um, uh, if you would like prayer, there will be a prayer team over here. Who'd be, I'm sure I'm very happy to pray for you. We've got tea and coffee at the back. God bless you. Have a great rest of the week.